Father, thank you. We say hallelujah. Praise be to God. Our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Master. For all that you have done for us. Not because of us, but in spite of us. Thank you for being a good God, a great God, a loving God, a holy God, who is willing to give his one and only Son for us and to us. May you be honored now in how we listen. May you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to love, hands and feet to obey, and knees to bow before you, so that we will say your will, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team, for leading us so well this morning in singing great songs of worship to our God. I encourage you to take a Bible, find a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a Bible near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you. And if you will find your place in God's Word, Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. That's New Testament. There's Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, and then Mark. And this morning we are returning to our study of Mark, which we have entitled Life on Purpose. And this morning I want to speak to you on the subject of a reality check. As you're finding your place in God's Word, just a couple of introductory comments here this morning. First, I never want to go too long without saying that I love being your lead pastor. I love that. And I want you to know, because several of you have made comments, we've just passed our three-year anniversary here at Bethel Baptist Church in Schaumburg, and several of you have made comments along the way. You've asked, is this a stepping stone ministry for you? In other words, are you headed somewhere else and you happen to be with us for a few years? And I say to you, no. My hope and my prayer is that God would allow us as um, the Fields family to retire here. And so um, you're like, well, we have a say in that. (laughs) Yes, I know. I know. But, but I just want you to know, I love opening God's Word with you and to you. And whenever we have guest speakers, many of them will say, this church listens to God's Word so well. Thank you for the privilege of serving our God, our great God, alongside of you. The second comment I need to share with you this morning is that I, because I, I want to be transparent, I, I want to be upfront with you, I want you to know me, um, I, I'm struggling a little bit with jealousy and envy this morning, so would you pray with me? If you notice over here, my wife and two youngest daughters are gone. They are in Ohio visiting our grandson. And so part of me is there this morning. I would love to be with them, especially when they won't stop sending me pictures and videos. And so they play a part in my jealousy and envy this morning. Mark chapter 9. Jesus living life on purpose. Each of his steps planned, purposeful, leading to the cross where he will win that war for us, that that war against sin and death and the devil, and he will eternally free us by taking our death for us and giving us life, eternal life. 
And this is the Jesus we look in on in this text in Mark chapter 9. Now, just remember where we've come from. It's been a while since we've been together in Mark 9. Jesus has just come from the Mount of Transfiguration. He's been there with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But for us to pick up the text in verse 14, we kind of at least need to have that little bit of background. Because verse 14 says, And when they, that is Jesus and Peter and James and John, came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. They ran up to him. They greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. And he answered them. The disciples, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of our God. This is the Son of our God. Around Thanksgiving at our house, our kids begin asking the all-important question. It's this, Dad, what do you want for Christmas? And honestly, being 51 years old, I have pretty much accumulated everything I need, although after living here in Chicago for three winters now, I can't get enough wool socks, stocking caps, sweatshirts, or long underwear. And so over the past few Christmases, my response to my kids has been, all I want for Christmas is for everyone to get along and be happy. Because it isn't like that in our world. I mean, just a week ago, Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives struggled big time to elect a Speaker of the House, even though they hold a majority over the Democrats. And the inability of politicians to get along and work together for the common good is a microcosm of our world. It's all messed up. Just last Wednesday night, 
Just before 9 o'clock in the evening, police officers and first responders descended upon our neighborhood with sirens blaring. The next day we learned that they were there responding to a report of shots fired. This world is messed up. Our block where we live is messed up. And that's why one of our 2023 church initiatives is that we would be a people who care enough that we would get equipped to help hurting people by pointing them to the hope we have in Jesus. And so again, I'm encouraging you to attend our biblical counseling training right here in the lower level fellowship center on January 28th. Because the question confronting us right here in Mark chapter 9 isn't just how do we as Jesus followers navigate life in a messed up world. It's actually more specific than that. It's how do we as Jesus followers interact with broken people living, uh, living in this messed up world. You see, this text is a reality check for us. Because when we're confronted with hurting people in a messed up world, our tendency is to want to fix them. For us to fix them. Our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, our co-workers. But in this scene, we are hit with the reality that we don't have the wisdom or power to fix people. Only God can. And that's why the big idea of this text is that without Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. This story shows us that we are, even right now, this morning, in this room of Schaumburg, Illinois, we are engaged in a very real battle with a very real and powerful enemy, and that battle is won only on our knees in prayer. That's what the disciples learn when Jesus descends the mountain. Now, again, it's been two months since we've been right here in Mark's gospel. So let me bring us up to speed. I want to remind you that up to this point in Mark's gospel, it's been pretty easy for the followers of Jesus to follow Jesus. Jesus has been teaching. He's been healing. He's been calming storms. He's been walking on the water. He's been feeding thousands of people at one time with just a few loaves and a few fish. And then right here in chapter 9, he's taken three of his disciples up onto that mountain to overcome their doubts about his identity by giving them a glimpse into his deity, proving to them that in fact and indeed he is God in human flesh. He peels back the veil of his humanity and gives them the privilege of of glaring into the glory of his godness. And the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, are so taken with what they see of Jesus that they want to stay there on that mountain into, in, in a kind of perpetual worship gathering forever. Let's never go back to the real world, Jesus. Let's just build tents. Let's stay here. What we see of your glory is enough to satisfy us forever. Let's never go back. But what they don't know 
is that following Jesus is about to get a lot harder. Things are about to get real. Because right here in chapter 9, the road for Jesus is taking a final turn toward Jerusalem and the cross. And so they can't stay on that mountain with Jesus. Because he can't stay on that mountain They have to follow Jesus down into the valley where people are hurting. And what the disciples have experienced on that mountain is going to prepare them to follow Jesus into hard places like Schaumburg, Illinois, and to deal with hurting people living in this messed up world. It's a poignant reminder that Jesus does not call us today to a kind of perpetual worship gathering on the mountaintop. Now, can I just be honest with you this morning? I do hope that there is a sense in which you think of our times together on Sundays as a kind of mountaintop experience where you are brought, like these disciples, face to face with God's great glory in His Word. And because of that, that every Sunday there's a part of you that wishes this would never end. Okay, I'm waiting for amens. I'm waiting for claps. I anticipated this would happen, so I have right, no, right here in my notes, uh, okay, I expected a few claps and amens. I have that right here. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's called shaming you into a response. But listen, we learn in this text that God uses this time each Sunday to inspire us and prepare us and equip us from His Word to give the hope of Jesus to our world. That's so messed up. Our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, Because it's after the mountaintop experience here that Jesus heads down with these three disciples into the valley, into a troubled world where he engages the enemy. He walks right into the middle of an ongoing argument between the scribes and the disciples. Now remember, the scribes are part of the Jewish religious establishment. They're Jewish religious leaders. And remember, they're always following Jesus around. We're not surprised here when we see that that. They're not too far. The scribes aren't too far away from Jesus. The scribes are with the disciples. They're always following Jesus around, not because they believe in Jesus, but because they're attempting to trap Jesus. They're building their case against Jesus. They're collecting, at least attempting to collect, enough evidence against Jesus to charge him with blasphemy so that they can kill him. So it shouldn't surprise us. That while Jesus is on the mountain, the Jewish religious leaders begin stirring things up with the disciples. See, a dad has brought his demon-possessed boy looking for Jesus. But Jesus is on the mountain. And so in the absence of Jesus, this man asks those nine disciples to cast the demon out of his son. But they can't. And the scribes, man, they are all over this. They are loving this. They're in the face of the disciples. They're taunting the disciples. It's like what Packers fans do to Bears fans because the Packers have an eight-game winning streak against the Bears. And if we're not careful here, things are about to get out of hand. 
And they're about to get out of hand here in this text. The crowd's getting involved now. Now it's not just the scribes and the disciples. Now the crowd is entering into this argument. But notice here, this dad is not interested in the argument. This dad is only interested in helping his son. I think there's a lesson here for us. And can I be blunt with you this morning? Hurting people aren't interested in what the church tends to argue about. Hurting people don't care if we're a piano and an organ church or if we're a full-blown band church. Hurting people don't care if we use the King James Version of the Bible or the English Standard Version of the Bible. Hurting people don't care about our political pontifications on Facebook or Twitter. Hurting people are looking for action, not arguments, for hope and help. Real hope and real help. And that's why when Jesus asks, what are you arguing about? This dad seizes the moment. And he answers, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Almost like epilepsy. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. But there's more, because when Jesus asks the Father later on how long this has been happening, the Father says down in verses 21 and 22, it's been happening since childhood, since he was very young. And he says, this demon has been terrorizing my son since he was young and has often cast my son into fire and water to destroy him. So this is serious. And every parent in this room this morning knows that nothing will make you more desperate before God like watching your kids suffer. Luke 9 tells us that this son is this man's only child. Matthew 17 tells us that that's why he comes up to Jesus and falls on his knees before Jesus. Every parent feels the agony and the pain in this dad's heart because he knows that if Jesus doesn't do something and do something soon, his son is going to die. I wonder, in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces, do we understand the seriousness of the situation we face as we engage in this battle against evil? Or have we gotten used to it? It's just the way the world is. It's messed up. So that when things happen in our neighborhoods, like what happened last Wednesday night in our neighborhood, do we hit our knees and pray? Do we even care? Or do we just say, you know what, it's time to put our house up for sale and move out of a neighborhood that's messed up? This man, this man knows his son is in trouble and it is a, an intentionally descriptive picture of what evil is and what evil does. And so if Jesus does not do something and step into the situation and do something quickly, his son is going to die. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? 
Jesus isn't just speaking to his disciples there. He is speaking about his disciples. He's calling them faithless and unbelieving. He's saying that they are spiritually shallow. They thought that they could cast this demon out in their own strength. Through their own power. Independent of Jesus. That's why they failed and failed miserably. Just like we do when we try to obey God in our own strength, when we try to overcome evil in our own power, when we attempt to do godly things or be godly people or a godly spouse or a godly parent or a godly employee or a godly pastor. When we try to be and do those things without God. Listen, we can't do or be anything godly without God. And that's why Jesus will say later to his disciples on the night of his betrayal and arrest as he's in the upper room with them, he will say something to him during which I believe he is alluding back to this event in Mark 9. Guys, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me, stay close to me. And I in him He it is that bears much fruit. Get this. Guys, remember? Remember the demon-possessed boy that you couldn't cast the demon from? Remember? Without me, you can do nothing. Jesus does not say, without me, you can do some things or a few things or even the easy things. No. Jesus says, without him, we can do nothing. Nada. Nine. And I can't remember the other words. Without Jesus, we are totally powerless in the face of evil and the evil one. And that's why we read this morning from Ephesians chapter 6. That's why we read, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Why? Because we do not wrestle against one another. We do not wrestle against the the political other side of the aisle. We do not wrestle against our neighbors. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the workers of evil in the demonic realm. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Do we get that? Do we get that we live every day on the battlefield? As believers in Jesus, we are engaged in a war that is beyond us. And so we've got to be tapped into a power that's beyond us. To be plugged into the power of Jesus. And that's why Jesus says right here, bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to me. Now I want you to notice the specific wording in verse 20. Notice that it isn't the dad who brings his son to Jesus. They bring the boy to Jesus. So the big question is, who's the they? Well, who has Jesus just been speaking to? The disciples. The disciples bring this boy to Jesus. 
They will have a front row seat. For them, this is going to get up close and personal. This reality check. Because when the demon sees Jesus, notice the demon's response. He immediately convulses the boy, throwing him to the ground where he rolls around and begins foaming at the mouth. Now again, that detail is significant. Mark is intentionally giving us a graphic picture of what evil looks like, what it's capable of. Evil isn't just dangerous, evil is deadly. So don't underestimate the power of even a little evil. Because evil is never satisfied until it totally consumes its prey. And that's why this dad says to Jesus, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And instantly Jesus is taken aback. Have you noticed as we walk through the Gospel of Mark that Jesus isn't taken aback very often? But he is here. If you can do anything. Jesus is saying, sir, there's something you need to understand about me. The issue here isn't my ability or my willingness. The issue here is your humility and faith. Will you bow to me? Will you worship me? Will you trust in me? Because if you come to me, and if you trust in me, and humble yourself before me, things you can't even begin to imagine are possible. The same is true for us. In our struggle against the pull of evil in our world and in our hearts. You see, our problem is not that our God lacks power or willingness to meet our need. The problem is our unbelief. We doubt and we question. We even limit the power of God working in our lives through our unbelief. We've got to believe Ephesians 3 verse 20. That all, that, that, that our God is so powerful, so willing. He is, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think according to His power at work in us. His power. Listen, He is God unlimited. Which is why this dad in this story immediately cries out to Jesus I believe. Help my unbelief. Literally, that phrase, help my unbelief, could be, and I think probably should be translated, I believe, Jesus, run to my unbelief. It's not just a cry of desperation. It's a cry of confession. It's Jesus, I need you, not just to rescue my son from his demon, but to rescue me from my unbelief. I can't do it. Without you. And that's what the disciples should have said. That's what we should be saying. Lord, we believe, but our belief isn't all it should be. So run to me and rescue me from my unbelief. Let's just be honest here this morning. There are moments in life when we panic because we forget. That God is for us and with us. 
There are moments that we fall and we fail because we think that we are sovereign when only God is sovereign. And in those moments, what matters, we learn here, what matters isn't the depth of our faith, but the direction of our faith. Because our faith finds its power not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of our Savior. And that's why when Jesus then sees the crowd pressing in to see what's going on, he commands the demon to come out of this boy forever. And kicking and screaming and screeching, the demon obeys Jesus, not because he wants to, but because he has to. Because Jesus possesses all power and all authority, both in heaven and on earth. Not just power over demons, but power over death. Because notice here, the demon leaves this boy's body lifeless. So lifeless that many of the people there think he's dead. And then come two of the most important words in the entire Bible. The first two words of verse 27. But Jesus, the demon has left this boy for dead, but Jesus, there is nothing, listen, there is nothing in your life that is too much for Jesus. There is nothing in our world that is too hard for Jesus. Your marriage may seem dead like this boy. But Jesus can give it new life. Your child may seem to be too far gone, but Jesus can bring them back. The pull of pornography or adultery may seem too strong, but Jesus can free you from its grip. Because Jesus specializes in breathing new life into what seems lifeless and hopeless. And if you're a believer in Jesus this morning, you know that. Because that's your story. Jesus has breathed eternal life into your dead soul so that there's nothing now that he can't do in you or for you or through you. So let this truth not only, not only inform your unbelief, but transform your unbelief. And let me say this morning, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we're glad that you're here. We love it that you're with us, and we want to be the hands and feet and the heart of Jesus to you and welcome you and embrace you. But if you're not a believer in Jesus yet, I say to you this morning, you can be right here, right now. Jesus can breathe the grace of new life into your soul, enabling you to repent of your sins and trust in him. Look at this from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Jesus dies, not for anything he's done, but for everything we have done, our sins. Jesus dies to take away the eternal death that our sins deserve, to give us the new life and eternal life that he has earned. And when you repent of your sins and trust in him, he will take away that eternal death and replace it with his eternal life. Look at what Jesus can do in Mark 9. 
And then look at what Jesus has done on the cross and through the empty tomb. Jesus can give life. He will give life to all who repent and believe. New life, abundant life, eternal life. And that's why Jesus says in John 6 verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. So will you trust this morning in the only one who can give life? Because you and I don't have the strength or the power or the ability to overcome sin and death and the devil. But Jesus does and Jesus has. And he will for you. That's the point of the story. Because when Jesus gets alone with his disciples, their burning question is, why couldn't we do that? Why couldn't we cast that demon out? And they're asking that because if you remember back in chapter 6, Jesus gave them power over the demons. Mark chapter 6 verse 13 says that they didn't just cast out one little demon back then or even a few weak demons. They cast out many demons, but not this time, not with this boy. And so Jesus instructs the disciples by answering their question with a simple but profound answer. The reason you couldn't do it is because you never can. You never can. You see, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And you're like, well, I, I, I get what Jesus is saying here. You know, you know, this in Mark chapter 9, this is a major league demon, and the demons back in Mark chapter 6, they were minor leaguers. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is going to the heart of the matter. He is giving the disciples a reality check. And he says, your issue is self-confidence. You think you can without me. And their self-confidence and overconfidence is revealed through their prayerlessness. We've seen the detailed description of the evil overtaking this boy and the destructive, distorting power that evil has. And these disciples think that somehow, some way, they can do this on their own. They can handle this demon apart from Jesus. Tim Keller says, The problem with the disciples is that they've been trying to do God's work apart from God's power. How arrogant, how clueless they are about their inadequacy to deal with the evil and suffering in this world. The disciples tried prayerless exorcism for the same reason they can't understand why Jesus has to die. They don't see how weak and proud they are. They underestimate the power of evil both in the world and in themselves. I wonder, do we see unbelief as evil? Do we see attempting to do life on our own and overcome sin on our own and be who God wants us to be on our own? Do we see that as evil? That's why Jesus says, guys, the problem is that you did not pray. And so if there is anything that should characterize the followers of Jesus, it's prayer. 
Do we believe that? If that were used to determine whether or not Bethel Baptist Church is truly a following Jesus kind of church, what would people say about us? Are we a church of prayer? You know, every once in a while we'll hear some things from people who attend our church or members of our church, and one of the things we've heard lately is, why do you pray so much in the morning service? Can I answer the question? This is why. If there's anything that should characterize the followers of Jesus, it's prayer. Just two weeks ago, a professional football player's heart stopped beating on the field. And as DeMar Hamlin's heart was shocked back to life, 300-pound elite athletes instinctively hit their knees and their hands with tears coming down their cheeks on a football field, crying out to God to spare their friend and teammate's life. Here's the kicker. Many of them don't claim to be followers of Jesus. Nobody told them to hit their knees and pray. But the natural human response when we feel our powerlessness over a situation is to hit our knees and go to God. Isn't it? Is that your first response? Or is that more of a last resort? Because the sad fact of the matter is that there were more football players praying on the field that night than there are in most churches on prayer meeting night. Why? Because we don't see our situation as desperate as they saw their situation. Frankly, we don't really believe that we need to pray. We don't really get that we are totally powerless in the face of a real enemy. And so there are three big takeaways from this text that I want to leave you with this morning. The first being what I shared at the beginning, so I'm just going to simply restate it. Here's the first takeaway. Let your worship of Jesus inspire you to take the gospel of Jesus into a world that desperately needs the hope found in Jesus. I know it's long. But I would ask you to just focus on this. Pray about this. There's a world out there that needs Jesus. A messed up world. And one of the reasons we gather here is to worship, to be inspired and prepared and equipped to take the gospel of Jesus to those who are looking for hope that is found in Jesus. But for that to be true, listen, for that to be true, we've got to plead with God to open our eyes to, secondly, see the evil of evil. And you're like, PK, we've, we've seen the destructive power of evil in this story. We get it. We hate it. We trust in the one who's overcome it. But do we really? It's, evil, it's easy to see the evil of evil in this text, in this story, in, in black letters on a white page. It's a lot harder to see the evil of evil in our own hearts. Because evil doesn't always appear evil to us. Sometimes it appears attractive and even downright beautiful. Guys, 
The moment that image of a woman pops up on your phone, it does not look or feel evil. It looks beautiful. Even though there is lust within your heart eating away at your soul. If you're listening to a juicy piece of gossip, it doesn't feel destructive. It feels enlightening and scintillating. And so I need to ask you this morning, where in your life are you tempted to make a peace treaty with evil? To live with it. To be okay with it. Where are you tempted to look at what God says is evil and see it as not that evil? Where is sin attractive for you? You see, this story gives us great hope because we learn here that Christ has the power to overcome evil. But we also learn that thirdly, third takeaway, when we're prayerless, we're powerless. Powerless over that evil that looks so attractive but is so destructive. And so I say to us as a church, let's be a repenting church. Let's be a falling to our knees kind of church, pleading with God to loosen the grip of evil on our hearts. Let's be a praying people. Let's be a praying church. Because if we aren't praying, it's because we think we've got this. We can do this. But here's the reality check. We can do nothing without Him. We live in a messed up world where we face things that we aren't able to defeat on our own, whether it's a situation or a temptation, whether it's evil thoughts or sinful desires. And when we are prayerless, we are powerless to defeat the evil within us or to be used by God to help others in the grip of evil. Our strength is found only in the devil-defeating, sin-overcoming, death-defying grace of Jesus. And so, because we believe that, let's echo the words of this dad in Mark 9, and let's cry, Lord, I believe. Run to my unbelief and rescue me from me, because without you, I can do nothing. Amen. Father, convince us of this truth. I mean, really, convince us by dropping us by your grace to our knees. Forgive us of our self-confidence and overconfidence. Forgive us of trying to do and be what you want us to do and be without you and apart from you. If you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, would you become a believer in Jesus this morning? Would you stop trying to do it all on your own, earn your own way, be good enough, do enough? Would you see that even those who are followers of Jesus we can never do enough or be enough. Without Him, we can do nothing. Would, you, would this morning, right where you are, would you trust in the One who's done what you couldn't to give you the life, eternal life, that you need? Would you cry out to Him in faith right now? Lord, save me. And Christian, 
Where has God put his hand or his finger on your life this morning? It's been a reality check. And he says, you can't break the cycle of evil that hold in your heart. And you can't help others in the grip of evil without me. May God help us to be a repenting people, a praying people. In Jesus' name, amen.